listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. Joining me today to discuss the Inflation Reduction Act is IER's Policy Director, Kenny Stein. Kenny, welcome back to the show. Thanks to be. Glad to be here. So there's a lot, obviously, in this bill, um, but I want to keep our focus on the energy and climate aspects of it. Um, the bill's going to spend $369 billion on uh, the language that Democrats are using is energy security and climate change. So to start, can you just run through the major provisions in that spending? Uh, where is all this money going? Yeah. So, well, first of all, keep in mind that because the vast majority of this spending is tax credits, that $369 billion is just the CBO's estimate of how much uh, will be expended on those things. So, you know, if a, if a tax credit is used more or used less, you know, that number could be higher or lower. So just keep in mind, that's not like literal cash being handed out, you know, tomorrow type of thing. Um, but so, as, but as I said, it's mostly tax credits. There's, um, and there's a, an extension of the electric vehicle tax credit, though there's a bunch of new caveats attached to it. There's an extension of the wind production tax credit. There's an extension of the solar. Uh, well, it's the investment tax credit. It's mostly used by solar, but it can be used by uh, lots of different uh, uh, energy sources. Um, the ITC has also expanded um, to include uh, battery storage, which is, this is the first time that battery storage has ever been eligible for you know, tax credits. Um, it also hands out uh, a subsidy to a, P a production tax credit subsidy to nuclear plants. Um, there's some money for uh, subsidizing transmission. So uh, basically, it's tax credits they're getting handed out. There's more. There's a extension of the carbon capture tax credit. So it's a lot of tax. It's tax credits for everybody, basically, uh, except of course the oil and gas industry, which is you know the the energy that everyone actually uses. Those don't get tax credits, but it's everything else. Um, now, the one thing is, is that there, uh, like I said, there are some uh, caveats that are included, especially the electric, electric vehicle tax credit. Um, there's a lot of uh, requirements of the sourcing of the minerals that go into the batteries, uh, where the car is constructed. Um, and it's actually so narrow, uh, you know, where the crit critical minerals can't come from um, countries like China. Um, the, the standards are so narrow that um, even the car company, like the big car companies have said that those EV tax credits are probably going to be unusable. Uh, it's certainly in the near term, you know, maybe long term they get their supply chains fixed and they can eventually use it. But short term, uh, they're not going to be available for pretty much anybody. Um, so, the, so it's not. in also in with both the PTC and ITC extensions, there's some uh, issue. There's some um, bonuses that you can get more money from them uh, if you uh, do prevailing wages. Uh, there's apprenticeship requirements, so there, it's not straight extensions of some of these existing tax credits. There are there are some changes to them that basically that that Senator Manchin um, forced into it. So it's it's slightly different than what, the way those tax credits have worked in the past. But again, the the idea is that it's lots of incentives um, to do things that the Democrats uh, want done in the energy industry. Yeah, so Democrats are claiming, among a bunch of other things that this bill is going to do, is that it's going to cut energy bills by $500 to $1,000 a year and reduce carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. So with all the Build American and, uh, 
I guess the uh, 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 prevailing wage sort of language that's in this, um, along with just the fact that we know that renewable energy isn't uh, competitive at, at in, in terms of costs, uh, it seems pretty unlikely that these are that these two claims are going to come to fruition, don't you think? Yeah. So there's there's a couple elements to to this the claims of um, well the, the cost savings first of all that's that's just made up that's not going to happen there's there's they have models that assume that, that uh, renewable energy is cheap um, the real world examples actually so that uh, grid wide that more renewables actually increases the overall cost of electricity you know whatever whatever however you know whatever value there is to wind and solar as you know again when the wind's blowing when the sun's shining yeah it's very cheap but what do you do the rest of the time you know that that so grid wide renewables very clearly raise the overall cost of electricity that's the example you see in germany and denmark they have very high wind penetration also the highest electricity rates in in europe you see that in the united states california has the high one of the highest renewable penetrations their electricity prices are double the close to double the nationwide average i think so basically they have models that say that renewables are cheap. And so when you plug in the numbers in the model, it says, oh, this is going to save people money on electricity. Uh, that's not actually going to happen in the real world. So the the cost savings, the claimed cost savings, that's that's just basically false overall. Now there's, in very narrow examples, some people might save a little bit of money. Like if someone uses the tax credit to install a heat pump, that's, you know, rather than using their old 30-year-old inefficient AC unit, they install a heat pump that's much more efficient, then yeah, they're going to save a little on their electricity bills. But that's because they're installing new equipment. It's not necessarily that the, the renewable electricity is suddenly super cheap. Um, so there's some elements of that that'll save, save individual consumers money. But again, at the grid-wide scale, the overall cost of the electricity grid, the overall cost of generating the electricity that we need, uh, this bill is not going to do anything to lower those costs. Now it's going to shift some of that cost to the government. You know, the government's going to spend some money. So you know, at the meter, uh, you know, when someone's paying, things may look somewhat cheaper, but they're paying higher taxes or having higher inflation or, or government borrowing is making that appear quote unquote cheaper. Um, so, uh, so truly, the 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 Inflation Reduction Act is a completely false. Uh, characterization of this legislation. It, and even, even, even the standard modeling, even the modelers that are more friendly to Democrats and government spending in general, pretty much everyone acknowledges that this will not reduce inflation. Uh, if anything, in the short term, will probably raise inflation a little bit. Um, so that, that was entirely a PR thing. You got, surprise, surprise, after they passed legislation, no one's talking about inflation anymore. They're talking about the biggest climate spending bill in history type thing. Which that's that was always the goal here. Um, now on the emissions side, though, again, the those claims are based on models, and so they've got their models and they plug in if if the maximum number of people take up these tax credits and you build X amount of wind and solar with the tax credits, then emissions are going to go down X amount. Now the problem is is that there's no the you know. Well, problem for them, you know, maybe for for America it might be a benefit. There's no stick that is going along with all these carrots in the legislation. It's all subsidies. It's all handing out money um, to do the things that we want you to do. But there's no penalties for not doing it. So if fewer people, uh, you know, install heat pumps, 
uh, if wind, these wind and solar uh, facilities that want to take advantage of the PTC or ITC, if they, they can't get transmission built or they can't get financing or, or, the, or you know, local counties and communities refuse to let them build there, you know, if there's not uptake of these tax credits to the degree they expect them to be, then those emissions targets will not be hit. So that's why, it, yes, it's possible that there will be emissions reductions from this, but it's impossible to say how much. And we know from recent history, at least on the, the, the claim that it's going to cut energy bills, we know from recent history that uh, in the past like 10 years or so, um, the price of electricity in the United States has gone up about 7%, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, even though the relative costs of coal and natural gas have been declining and there really hasn't been that much new generation added. And when you look at, when you separate out just individual states that um, have had major increases with wind and solar in that time period, it's the cost of electricity has gone up like uh, much more than that. It was, it's between 20 and like 35%, I think. So, right. well, um, just in, yeah. in, a, in a vacuum, like you yeah. said, in the last 15 years, because of fracking, the price of natural gas has plunged hugely. And natural gas is the largest uh, generator. It's, I think it's close to 40% of our electricity comes from natural gas. So if you have your main feedstock getting cheaper over the last 15 years, electricity prices should have been, certainly shouldn't be rising. I, I would argue they should be falling, but they certainly shouldn't be rising, especially because demand hasn't been increasing. Demand has been pretty steady over that time. So just in a vacuum, electricity prices should not have risen. Now, obviously we believe that renewables are a significant part of that cost increase. Um, the, whether the, directly connecting that in every single state is hard to say, but you definitely have, as you said, it's, there's this prevailing evidence that in, in countries and in states that have higher renewable penetrations, their electricity rates tend to be higher too. So there's certainly whether how much of that causation you can't say might not be able to say for certain you know, because there's lots of variables that go into the cost of electricity but certainly there is a there is a significant correlation um that and and most importantly going back to the original claim that this is going to lower prices uh it's very clear that more renewables does not lower prices that's unquestionable now whether the renewables are responsible for the increased prices you know you know, it's a little harder to suss out based, you know, how those calculations happen. But it very clearly does not reduce prices. The long run implications of this bill, I think, are worrying because it sets a trend that we've seen with major spending bills that have provisions of, with energy in them. Um, that, you know, it, with each one of these bills, it just invites more rent seeking, more unproductive entrepreneurship. Um, you mentioned Europe. You know, we haven't quite gone as far as Europe down the path of the green energy transition, but uh, with a bill like this that expands all these subsidies, expands, um, uh, extends the, the, the life of them, um, how worried should we be that we're on a similar path, I guess, to what we're seeing in Germany and in the UK right now? Yeah, well, this is this is the problem with all these all this subsidization and intervention in the energy markets, and is that you have uh, politicians and their you know affiliated think tanks or um, you know academics that are trying to look into the future and guess what the best energy mix is going to be, 
And so in Germany, they decided partly out of a weird pathological fear of nuclear, they decided that natural gas was the, was the future of their electricity system. So they, they, you know, they built lots of renewables, but the backbone of the grid was going to be natural gas. The backup for all those renewables was going to be natural gas. And that's because the politicians, um, you know, because they're blinkered, they, a lot of them have a blinkered view of what Russia was, uh, the kind of regime Russia is, is run by. Um, they thought it would be perfectly fine for them to be completely dependent on Russian gas. They didn't give them a second thought, we're going to subsidize our way into dependence on Russian gas. And now we see the problem, Russia, Germany's having to, major parts of their economy are in danger of having to shut down this winter because they don't have gas. So that was not a, an, an, a market failure. That was the politicians made this happen. They created this vulnerability that was now come to fruition. So that is the concern I see with all of this. This is the same reason why central planning is always so dangerous, is that you're encouraging an activity that otherwise wouldn't happen. And so that has you have unforeseen consequences for that. And for, for example, this is something that is a very real issue right now. It's part of, I talked about how some of the tax credits have, the EV tax credits have limitations on sourcing of the materials, but the, the things like critical minerals and a lot of the natural resources that go into building wind and solar facilities, um, they're not mined in the United States, they're not produced in the United States, they come from somewhere else. So we're creating new dependence. We, we, you know, we just got ourselves off of dependence of, on foreign oil, but now we're gonna create dependence on foreign, renewable, foreign renewables. So it's like, yes, the, the wind and the sun are domestic, like they're in America, but you still have to build a large machine to harvest that wind power, to harvest that solar power. And those, those, those solar panels aren't built in the United States. Uh, most, of the, most of the components of wind turbines are not built in the United States. So it's, it's, you're creating a long-term dependence. Um, you're, and these tax, uh, these tax credits, you know, there are tax credits in there for you know, domestic assembly of solar panels and you know, things like that. But it's more expensive to build things in the United States. It just is because American workers are more expensive. American workers are better educated. They um, require workplace safety protections that, you know, that um, forced labor in China doesn't require. So if you, if you are gonna build these things in the United States, it's gonna make the cost assumptions even worse. The wind and solar are gonna be even more expensive because if you're making them in the United States. So again, it's, all of the all every, the whole theory underlying this legislation is is a lot of assumptions, and it's assumptions that government planners and government forecasters um, can see the future, and you can't. There's a, you know no one no one really foresaw until until you know a few months before it happened. No one foresaw that Russia would actually invade Ukraine and that Russian gas would actually be cut off. That was completely unforeseen by any of these European governments. So who's to say that you know? we grow dependent on solar panels, but then China decides to cut off solar panel exports to the United States. What do we do to replace our, you know, the solar panels that break down and need to be replaced? Um, so again, this, this is the problem, again, with central planning, with picking winners and losers, is that um, doing, you're doing what politicians think sound good, not necessarily what the best uh, practice for the energy industry itself really is. Yeah, and one of the assumptions that always seems to be built into these models is that 
oh, well, you know, the fossil fuel industry will just stop innovating as well. No one foresaw the fracking boom coming. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, and also the the idea that that you're going to be able to force, you know, African countries to give up on oil and switch over to wind and solar and electric vehicles. No, they're going to do they're going to use the cheapest product that they can get to to industrialize. And frankly they frankly they have every right to do so. So the the idea that, you know, we make a few tinkering changes in the United States and that's somehow going to change the course of history. It's just that's not really the way the world works. Yeah, so my last question for you. So we know that once rules and regulations and subsidies get established, it can be pretty hard to undo them, obviously, because it creates a political constituency that has a vested interest in keeping them around. But, uh, you know, there, there are historical cases where we've rolled back uh, 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 rules and regs. And, um, you know, it, it usually comes at the point where things have kind of broken down thinking of, you know, the, the seventies oil crisis and, um, instances like that. But, um, my final question, I guess, is just, you know, what does a path to undoing some of this stuff look like? Um, maybe with the next Congress, um, obviously it depends on how things play out with, uh, elections coming up, but, uh, what does that path look like? Right. So one of the big, biggest weaknesses of this, uh, legislation, legislative push long-term is that, it was passed on a partisan basis. Not a single Republican voted for it. It was all Democrats versus all Republicans. Um, but because that was simple majority vote, all everything in this piece of legislation can be repealed by simple majority vote. Now, obviously, you'll need you'll need a, a Republican in the White House too. But that trifecta will happen again. You know, that's the way our political system works. Eventually, Republicans will be in charge, and they'll be able to repeal any and all of this uh, if they so choose. Now, as you said, it does you know. A vested interest is created by you know some of these tax credits and things, um, but there are parts of this legislation that absolutely are going to be revisited by a future Congress. So the the Superfund tax on every barrel of oil produced, uh, a future Republican Congress is going to repeal that. Uh, the book minimum corporate minimum book corporate book minimum tax of fifteen percent that is frankly a, a practical disaster, especially for manufacturing firms. That is going to be repealed by the next Republican Congress. And frankly, it may be repealed uh, uh, with Democratic connivance even sooner than that because it's because it's disastrous policy. So, so a lot of this is going to be revisited, um, and it's just a question of whether um, Republicans decide to repeal everything or they try and tinker. And that's you know uh, the example I. Uh, I see as being a tinker is the EV tax credit. There's plenty of Republicans that are fans of subsidizing. I mean, they like Republicans like to subsidize their constituencies too. Like this isn't this isn't just a Democratic Party thing. So there's there's a Republican uh, Republicans who can who want subsidies for EVs. But what they'll probably what they'll probably do is they'll they'll relax some of these sourcing requirements to make it easier for companies to get the subsidies. Uh, same thing with some of the PTC and ITC. They, you know, you might relax some of the prevailing wage requirements, but they're not going to repeal the tax credits themselves, most likely. I mean, obviously, we would like uh, a future Republican Congress to be that strong and just straight up repeal everything. Um, but, you know, the reality being what it is, you'll probably end up with a lot of tinkering of this. And again, that this is why this whole um, this whole route is just bad policy is because then you start you start tinkering each year and then over time we that's how we end up with some of these old tax credits and subsidies that still exist from decades ago that make no sense 
like they don't fit the world today, but you know, everyone's keeps, you know, just tinker with them a little bit and let them continue on. Now the one, the one benefit again, this, this legislation is all carrot, no stick. So you know, that allows um, some insulation from the harmful impacts of this. And there's no regulatory changes because it was a budget bill, they couldn't make policy changes and regulatory changes. So you know, turning the, the regulatory state around is much more difficult than repealing or mitigating the harm of a simple tax credit. So you know, in that sense, it is you know, not as devastating, <laughs> not as horrible as it could be. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of these tax credits, I think, are going to are going to be with us for a long time. It's the same thing. The Democratic Party claimed that they were going to repeal um, the the tax cut bill that the Republicans passed under Trump, um, and they didn't touch it this year th with this legislation. So that's that's the sort of thing that happens. You can be worked up about something, but eventually, when the time comes to actually do something about it, uh, it's it's hard to get a majority vote uh, to make it happen. Great. Today's guest has been IER's Policy Director, Kenny Stein. Kenny, thank you for your time today. Yep.